Awesome. Nice. Nice. All right, Marie. Woo! Let's fucking do this. Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. Why do you keep asking me if I'm ready? I don't know. I don't know. Are you ready? I'm so ready. I'm so I'm ready. I'm totally ready. All right, let's do this. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Mad Scientist Podcast. I am your host, Marie Mayhew, and I am joined by Dr. Chris Cogswell. Say hello to the good people. Hello. Hello, good people. How's how's it going, Marie? It is going very well. Yeah, you had a good week? I had a lovely week. Wow. And now I am completely ready to talk about something really, really kind of uh, uh, skin crawling. Just straight horrible. Just straight up. Straight horrible. Straight up horrible for surgery part two, the Civil War. But before we go into that, how are you doing, Chris? Doing good. I was sick this week. You're sick? Well, I was sick today. I stayed home sick today. Oh, were you, quote unquote, I'm air quoting, sick? No, I had like a bad headache when I got up and throat thing and whatever, but. Oh, man. We'll see what happens tomorrow. Oh. I'm excited. I actually like, I, it's weird. I'm like one of those weird people that like almost, I don't enjoy being sick. I kind of enjoy being sick. How on God's greenest earth could you enjoy being sick? Like, like, I don't. Okay. Okay. I have popsicles and I stay in bed and I watch SpongeBob. I mean, yeah, that kind of thing that's, or... that's pretty much why I enjoy it, dude. Oh, yeah, man. I'm miserable when I'm sick. Like I will lay in bed, like in a fetal position for three days and not move. And that's really what it takes for me to get that for any, for anything. Yeah. I'm worthless. When Interesting. I'm, I'm worthless, but I don't like. It's like I'm the animal that's dying that crawls under the house, so it's away from people and it's no longer burden on others. Ball. That's sort of my Ball. mentality. Leave me I'm to like, die, Paul. I'm just like, because I'm like, I don't want anybody to, you know, have to do this or take care of me or anything. And there's always people, you know, like maybe my maybe my significant other who's like, honey, can you can you pass me that Kleenex? <laughs> you know, and it, it requires a lot of tending, which is fine because it takes all kinds when you are sick, right? Uh, I just like getting tended yes. to. I think that's my problem. I like getting oh, is tended that, to. Is that you? You're like, Katie, can I please have a popsicle? No, no, not orange. Not the orange kind. Great. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, real talk. Good. Oh, who would ever pick rape? All right, we're getting into it. Let's get start this oh. episode before this turns into a whole big thing. Great. <laughs> Ridiculous. Welcome to the Mad Scientist Podcast. Today's episode, History of Surgery, Part 2. Okay, so first part of our series, we talked about sort of the origins, the worldwide origins and the cultural origins of surgery. We sure did. Yes. Good synopsis. <laughs> Good synopsis. Well, I mean, it, and you can see, like, early on, there's definitely, uh, to your point, there were the three kind of pillars that we were talking about that needed to be attended to pretty quickly, which was you had to manage pain, um, you had to manage disease, and, man, the third one is, the third one is escaping me. You had to manage pain, disease, and bleeding. Oh, and bleeding. And bleeding. And bleeding, yes. And to various, you know, and up to the 1860s, 
the various degrees of success that that was that that was happening and really a lot of the surgery and methods about around surgery and and hospitalization and sort of healthcare in some ways in general came to a weird fruition in the American Civil War. This is where you start to see, again, um, the sort of perfect storm that America is divided. Uh, they're gearing up for war. And when things like this happen, certain industries kick in into high gear to really profit off of profit off of what's uh, profit off of the market and what's happening in culture at, at large. And one of them being guns, ammunition, and everything behind that, sort of the weaponry behind war. And as soon as those things are implemented into, you know, an actual battlefield, the ultimate outcome of that is like, well, how do you uh, resolve and tend to the people that you have just injured? And so the advent of surgery and surgical methods within the time of the Civil War. Right. But so really what I find so fascinating, so for those that have been kind of caught, caught on to what we're, we're getting into here, at this point, we're we last the first episode of this series, we talked about pretty much all the way back from, you know, the earliest recorded surgeries to basically right around the start of the 1800s. That's kind of where we are right now. And we're going to kind of gloss over some of the bigger names of the 1800s for right right now to get into really, really what was the impetus for American surgery to get better, right? We're an American show. And so it's kind of our, it's kind of always like our historical focus. Yes. But at this point, at the point of the American Civil War, for the listeners that don't know, the American Civil War started in 1861, yes. I want to say. Yes. And it had been, I mean, skirmishes and uh skirmishes 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 oh my god oh my god that's excellent or squirm i'm squirmish talking about surgery in the civil war skirmishes had been building up to that point there had been a lot of tension and a lot of unrest in general war actually was was uh broke out and the nation was divided in around eight it was 1861 yeah and so the interesting thing with the Civil War is for many historians, Amer like American historians are pretty much obsessed with the Civil War. Like if I mean, really, if if uh, there there have been more books and documentaries done on the Civil War than I think probably any other war in history. It's yeah. just like it's this at least from the at least from American authors. It is this like constant fascination and it's really something it's a war that we really haven't even ultimately come to terms with right there are still states that fly the flag of the losing side of the civil war yes. like it's crazy so but but the point kind of the point that i want to make though are, are twofold first is so at this point in time by the 1860s the united kingdom was actually well on its way to solving or you know Europe, basically, that's not just the United Kingdom, but Europe, but especially focused around um, London and Edinburgh, were right at the point where surgery was becoming modern. And 
that is going on simultaneously with a bloody war in the United States, which is being dealt with barbarically in terms of the treatment of wounds and surgery. So it's very fascinating from a surgical history point of view because it's sort of, you know, you this this technology, these ideas were out there to make the to make the outcome of the Civil War better than they were for a lot of people, although the outcomes actually we're going to get into this a little bit weren't actually all that bad for most people. The prevailing issue was still that issue of infection. But in terms of pain management and blood management, all of that was actually pretty good at that point. But it was the changes to the way that we treated and or, or handled infection that were going on in, in Europe at the time that had not made their way over to the United States that really made the difference. And so for a lot of a lot of people looking at the Civil War, it's a war that was fought with modern weaponry mm-hmm. and modern technology of death, but was utilizing basically medieval surgical and medical methods. And that is going to actually be, in my opinion, that is almost the prevailing injustice of war since the Civil War, which is that our capacity to kill each other has far outgrown and far outstripped our capacity to heal those that have been wounded by war. Yes. And you even see that today. All of this money is spent. I mean, we're not going to get too much into it, but we spend a lot of we spend a huge amount of money to get bigger bombs and more guns and better tanks and armor plating and all this other junk. But we spend a negligible amount of money on treating those who come home from war and and healing their wounds, both physical and psychological. Yes. And. Or even healthcare in general. Well, yeah, I, I mean, we, yeah, it's, you know, uh, and I think a big part of that that we kind of don't want to, we don't want to think about, but it's, it almost seems logical when you lay it out this way is the purpose of a war isn't to heal people. The purpose of the war is to kill people. Yes. Right. You're hoping to enact so much carnage on the other side that, you know, you're not caring about, um, you just want to kill more than the other guys did. You don't necessarily care about your people. And that's, it's an unfortunate fact, I think. And it's one that, um, you know, it's tragedy. It's terrible. Well, and I think, you know, in a, in, from a solely capitalist viewpoint, really there's money to be made on weapons. Right. Right. I mean, if you, that's what, that's what is going to garner the most demand at that point is what are the weapons, like to your, to your point, like what are the most modern weapons? What are the weapons that, um, are easy enough to get, um, are plentiful enough for a large amount of people, but they can also uh, take out as many people as possible. Because that, to your to your point, you only have so much when you start actually going into where you're only going to have so much resources and so much ability to to import or export or to get more things. So building up to it and almost stockpiling for any kind of a battle or any kind of large war is, is, is a huge, is a huge money driving machine. Sure. Unfortunately, but it is, it is true. And I mean, I think that that was, that was very much so the case in the civil war on a very early, in a very early, uh, in a very early stage. 
Um, I mean, again, some of the weaponry that was prevalent was was, uh, cult revolvers. So, again, used by both the the Union and the Confederacy. Rifles, the Spencer rifle. Um, Just looking at the Army model, again, Army model cults, which are just single fire. Um, The Henry rifle, which we actually talked about uh, quite a bit in our Winchester Mystery House, which is... Uh, again, something that can only fire, only fire um, one round at a time, but it's still a distance weapon. And it was able to shoot. It was able to shoot. If my memory serves correctly, it was able to shoot a number of rounds before reloading was required. So it was like, um, it was like you could shoot, but then you could pump, and you would get another bullet in the chamber. So it was like a repeating rifle, right? But it wasn't a, um, but it wasn't automatic. It was not, no, I think, I think, and I think if, again, I'm, I'm going to have to go back. I think this is almost the one before that, that the Henry rifle was the, was actually an earlier version. Oh, of that the, was the one. Okay. That was the one, one. That, right. The, the one that won the, the West is the one I'm the thinking. The one that won the West is the one that you actually could, could get five, five rounds into. Okay. But they did um, have, but they did have repeating weaponry in the Civil War. The they did have, they did, yeah, they had weapons that, so, and, and I mean, again, like, this is all part of the gun debate that's raging in the United States right now. We have some weird, like, we have some very arbitrary rules, like, if the gun, if you can shoot, like, if you can shoot seven bullets a minute, it's considered okay by law, but if it's, like, eight or or above, it's not okay. Like, we have some really weird arbitrary rules, and it's, like, if you have to, like, if you physically have to do something in between firing the bullet and then the next bullet, then it's considered not automatic, but if you can just shoot, like, a stream of bullets, it's automatic. Even if your the thing you're doing can be as little as like, you know, whatever, just like having the gun shake against you so quickly that your finger automatically smacks into it. Like it doesn't even have to be a like physical thing that you are doing. It's not whatever. It doesn't matter ultimately for this discussion. But the the general idea here, though, is that these guns were extremely lethal. They were accurate. They were much more lethal than the muskets that previous wars have been fought with. And you have to remember, too, this is really the first major war since the since the Revolutionary War the United States had been had been in. We had fought mm-hmm. in other wars, but they were always like, you know, they were they were kind of half hearted and it was small militias fighting and it was never a full throated like every man in a generation is going to go fight this other team and especially when it is your own citizenry fighting against each other. Yes. Um, this war is extremely costly for the United States in terms yes. of, of human I mean, lives. And you have, you have uh, American settlers using weaponry against the native population, which is not considered it's, it should be considered war, but it's not, it's also right. not evenly in any, in any, um, circumstance evenly dispersed no so civil war is like at this point both sides confederacy and union have rifles they have sidearms they have gatling guns which were again they're almost their version of a semi-automatic repeating rifle um it was used more sparingly because ammunition and the waste of ammunition and getting ammunition for the troops was considered a major concern. So, but they had a huge amount of weaponry. Um, also, one of the biggest 
changes that really affected the wounds and the damage that these weapons could do was the advent of the Minet ammunition. So before, uh, before this, ammunition itself was mostly round. So it was like a musket ball. Okay. And it had only a certain amount of, we can get all sciencey up in this, it had only a certain amount of propulsion coming out of the weapon, right? Sure. Because it, so, it was round and it was not aerodynamic. It was just fired. Yeah. The Minet was actually the first pointed or conical shaped. So it, when it hit and when it hit on impact, it drove into a body much further and did much more damage than a round musket type artillery. Right. So for, so to kind of get into that science a little bit. um, So imagine, so aerodynamics, it sounds really complicated, but it's actually relatively simple. And it's one of the few physics things that there is like a world, like a pretty well-known worldwide thing we can all agree on with this or think about. So imagine, imagine you're at home right now and you're waving your hand in the air. Which I'm doing. Okay, me too. It's great. Been doing it. Been doing it the whole time, Marie. If your hand, such good podcasting too. It really does. If you're that whooshing sound and that like out of breath thing you get after three hours. Um. Okay. If your hand is like flat, like you're waving hot hello to someone, and you you move it up and down in the air, like forward and back, so that your hand is pointing, like the palm of your hand is pointing in the direction that you're waving. You feel force or you feel air. You feel some of that air on your hand, right? Yes. So as you move your hand, your arm, your, your hand itself is actually pushing some of that air out of the way. And the air is in turn providing some resistance to your hand. And so that the amount of force that that is going to be applied to your hand, that resistance is proportional to the amount of surface area that is available for air to, to touch, right? Mm-hmm. So when you're moving your hand flat like that, where the palm is facing the direction that you're moving it towards, um, you're actually providing a lot of surface. And so there's going to be more resistance on your hand from the air. Now, if you move your hand so that it's like a chopping motion, right? And so the side of your hand um, is actually pointing towards the direction that you're moving you feel Mm -hmm. much less resistance. You hardly feel any air at all, Mm -hmm. right? And that is because the amount of surface area that you're pushing against the air with is much smaller. So the air provides less resistance or drag to your hand. And I mean, for a better example of that, you can think about like in in a pool, if you had your hand out and you pushed it along the water, your hand would actually, you know, cause a wave to form. Right. Because it's, it has yeah. a lot of surface to create force with. But if your hand was in that chopping motion and you slid it through the water, it would be able to float through the water, move through the water much more easily because, again, there's less surface area there. And so a rounded bullet, if you just think about like the face of the rounded bullet um, as it moves through the air, there's that big circular face available for air to hit off of. Right. Mm hmm. And I can imagine when it impacts, it has, it, it's almost buffered because it's already had, it's already had much more 
Well, it's moving a lot slower. And then also because when it hits the body, then like it's going to have a much harder time moving through the body as well because it's like a blunt force instrument. It's not cutting. Yeah. It's not piercing. Right. Yes. Whereas that round, that edged bullet, that conical shaped bullet, the one that we all think of when we think of a bullet, that tip there, that area that's really small, that means that all of the force of the bullet is touching your body at that very small area, that small point. And so there's just a lot more force in one area to allow for a lot more damage and yeah, a lot more motion through the body. Right. And then, of course, like for aerodynamics and all that stuff, the shape of the object also matters, like in terms of the bullet, if it's conical shaped with that pointed edge, that pointed edge basically provides an area for the air to like it'll basically create a film off the top of the edge. Uh huh. And so there's going to be like a zone, like basically like an umbrella almost. Yeah. The area behind the area below that edge is not going to feel any resistance. So it can float like there's just a lot less area again, whereas on a on a circular object, it actually it'll come up, but then it'll actually come back around the bottom again. So it like all of it feels resistance. So that is sorry. Go ahead. Finish. No, no, no. So, yeah. So that's that's basically like the quick and dirty uh, aerodynamic lesson for today, listeners. So good job. Good job getting through it. (laughs) But I would say, too, like that, that had a huge impact so the the minet ball as it's called when it hit when it hit a body it it did so much more damage than a normal round like i'm looking online and it's in basically extensive damage is a changed shape on impact shattering two to three inches of bone and dragging skin and clothes into the wound so like you were saying with sort of the resistance in this umbrella effect coming over it has such an impact going in that it takes whatever it's hitting and pretty much almost drags it into the wound with it shattering through bone. Yeah, it creates it basically it has enough force to actually hit like it has enough force that it won't go through bone. It will go through bone all of a sudden. And yes. so this is like a huge like Ugh. I think I read a statistic. I, I can't remember the exact statistics. So I don't, you know, whatever, but it was it's still gross. <laughs> it was big. Yeah, it's still gross. But basically, it's like really gross. during the during the during the Revolutionary War, um, the vast majority of soldiers who went out came home because they didn't die from their wounds because it was like, um, again, it was a it was a bullet like a like a circular musket bullet hitting your body at much lower at a much lower speed. Right. Yeah. Impact. And, yeah. And b- potentially not even breaking skin sometimes. I mean, most of the times it did. Right. But like the ability to actually aim and shoot was much less. Your lethality from far away was greatly reduced at a much higher rate than it would be for this new type of bullet. And also too, the fact that when the bullet entered, like the fact that the bullet can get deeper into the body means that to remove it, we have to cut into the body to get it. Mm, Yes. And it's dragging in all the dirt and all Anything that's on the surface of the of the clothes or the uniform that the soldier is wearing. So any kind of any kind of muck, any kind of anything that they've already been dragged through is now inside of their body. Yeah. However long. It's pretty much creating like the perfect storm of infection. Right. Yeah. And what's actually really interesting is so 
let's let's set the stage quickly for where so what okay so we're t- we've talked about the, the lethality of the civil war a bit right about yes. kind of what um what's the word kind of the numbers that we're talking about here with people in terms of it um the the uh, the the Union Army started out with two point two million soldiers. A mm-hmm. hundred and ten thousand of those were killed in action or died of their wounds. Man, yes. The statistic I had is there was about sixty thousand quote unquote surgeries performed. Yeah. So, and you know, again, air quoting surgery because surgery really two thirds. Not even two, three fourths of those were straight out amputation. Yeah. So that is the most prevalent surgery that is going to occur within the Civil War. Well, and so the other thing too is so that's just the that's just the Union side, right? So 110,000 um, were killed in action or died of their wounds. Three hundred and sixty-five thousand um, were the total dead. Mm-hmm. So. If only 110,000 of those died from their from from wounds or died in action, then that other 230,000 were considered accidental or disease related deaths on the on the Confederate side. It was ninety four thousand killed in action and then uh, two hundred and ninety or one hundred and thirty seven thousand wounded, twenty hundred and ninety thousand total dead. So the total uh, casualties on both sides, the total deaths on both sides were uh, close to a million dead. Um, and that's, and it was a so million. So much of it was. <laughs> like a million, a million. I mean, and the thing is the scale of the people, like the scale of that. When we, if we think about like the scale of that, even today, right. Um, the U S population is, I mean, 300 like 330 million people right so 1 million people died during uh during the civil war that's that's a huge amount still right and if we go if we go back more um i mean i think the oldest census records that are available is from like maybe the 1890s maybe right like the 1900s probably is the latest we can get the 1900s there were 76 million people in the united states and 1 million people died during the civil war so i mean you could imagine like the um the scale of that is tremendous yeah and that that at least the majority of them died from infection, right? Yeah. I mean, that that was, the, which is an incredibly gruesome, painful way of, of dying. It's not like, you know, you were, you were killed instantly on the battlefield. It's, it's you had this prolonged agony of something being amputated and then infection taking hold, which is, yeah. which we're going to talk more about because it's so pretty <laughs> to talk about. But... One of the things that I thought was interesting, so you have this huge influx of weapons. You have this huge call to arms, to your point, like all of these people, all these young men around 18 years of age coming into battle and, and going into the army. Um, guess how many actual surgeons there were? 
that they that they brought on and they said this oh. is you are now you are you are recognized you are trained surgeons i want to say i want to say it was like one percent of the total pop of the total soldier population 114 what were in the u.s army 114 24 of them resigned to join the confederacy and establish the confederate Confederate Medical Services. Wait, is this before? Right? This is this is when the 18, war. 1861. Okay, so this we is when the war kicks off. The war kicks off. So again, you have been gearing up on weapons. You have, since around, I want to say, oh 1840, you had the Manet bullet, which is, you know, and which is, which is going to cause more damage, which is known to cause more damage. It is now sort of the gold standard for, for ammunition. You have under 200 surgeons i mean that, that, that have any sort of training any sort of training on any of this it's fucking ins- it's insane it is insane and it it's also speaks insane. to sort of again where your mindset where the american civil war mindset is is that you are so um you are so focused on what it's going to take to extinguish what you have to extinguish the fire in front of you, which is the Confederacy or the Union, depending on what side you're on, that you haven't really reconciled until you are actually in battle what you're going to need to do to keep people whole. So, oh my God, that's crazy. Oh, I know. I, I was a little surprised by that as that's well. That's amazing. 100 and, I mean, 114. 114. Goodness. And so, as you can imagine, there was a lot of um, a lot of consternation about, especially after the first, you know, major battles, that that these that the people that were performing these surgeons were butchers, that they were basically underqualified, they were amateurs, they had no training, and they were they were like they were called butchers. Sure, and. But if you think about it, if you step back and you look at it in a much larger context, which is they're completely overwhelmed, they are, uh, they have absolutely no, if few resources to call upon, and everyone is getting shot, then it's, you're constantly in siege mentality. So this is what you are going to have to react to. And it basically, what I was reading is, an amputation itself, they got down to uh, under 10 minutes. Sure. So from beginning to end, under 10 minutes. Yeah. And they had to do that just to be proficient, just to keep, just to keep moving. Just to keep people wounded. going through the door. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Sure. So, um, so, this, so and, this, I actually had a quote, I had a quote here that I liked from Dr. John Letterman. Yes. Who is the uh, medical director of the Army of the Potomac. He says, or Potomac, and this is his, in his report after the Battle of Antietam, he says, quote, The surgery of these battlefields has been pronounced butchery. Gross misrepresentation. Let me try that one again, Marie. <laughs> the sur- quote, The surgery of these battlefields has been pronounced butchery. Gross misrepresentations of the conduct of medical officers have been made and scattered broadcast over the country causing deep and heart-rending anxiety to those who had friends or relatives in the army who might at any moment require the services of a surgeon. It's not to be supposed that there were no incompetent surgeons in the army. It is certainly true that there were. 
But these sweeping denunciations against a class of men who will favorably compare with the military surgeons of any country because of the incompetency and shortcomings of a few are wrong and do injustice to a body of men who have labored faithfully and well. It is easy to magnify an existing evil until it is beyond the bounds of truth. It is equally easy to pass by the good that has been done on the other side. Some medical officers lost their lives in their devotion to duty in the Battle of Antietam, and others sickened from excessive labor which they conscientiously and skillfully performed. If any objection could be urged against the surgery of those fields, it would be the effort on the part of surgeons to practice conservative surgery to too great an extent. Yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty fascinating that it's, it's fascinating to think about these poor people who were kind of thrown into this. And, you know, one, I think that the role of the army medical personnel is always romanticized in some ways because, and I think to a large extent, it's because of the hero, you know, the heroism and the uh, just the terrible position that they're put into, right? I mean, mm-hmm. can you imagine? I mean, surgery at that point in time, we're gonna. So let's just set the stage quickly. At this point in time, we knew how to control blood flow to some extent mm-hmm. and stop blood from kind of completely. Um, we knew enough to know that blood loss could kill you. Let's put it that way. Yes. And so we knew that we had to limit blood loss and we had to tie up uh, veins and arteries and stuff if we amputated. Mm -hmm. We also knew enough to utilize some relatively new versions of anesthetics, right? Yes. So we're beginning to, within the later years of the war, we're beginning to become more prevalent. Yeah. So in, um, in 18... Basically, in 1840, uh, 1840, I'm trying to get the exact year here in my nose, 1847 was the first time that ether or chloroform, rather, was utilized on humans um, to be used basically as a method of, uh, you know, anesthesia, right? That was really the first time that it was used for this purpose. And so, um, and, and what they found was that it could be, um, it could be used to perform surgery without any kind of uh, pain. The person that, that took in the chloroform would not feel pain. Now, obviously, if any of you watch true, cl- true crime shows or anything, you know that chloroform is kind of a bad one to use because it can turn you, uh, it can kill you. And it can also, it, I mean, it knocks you out, but it can kill you if you've taken too much uh, chloroform. Yes, which, you know, again, just, a, just another fun side effect, right? Yeah, so um, the, other, the other one that was used, uh, the other one that was used was, were ethers, mm-hmm. right? And so, um, again, though, these were, um, these were methods of, these were methods of basically knocking someone out so that surgery could be performed on them. Right. But for the Civil War, Civil War... If if you did not have chloroform, or if, if it was before that, or any kind of ether, basically, you were going. You would you. The primary amputation happened like one to two days after, after the injury. Sometimes, right? So at that point, sure. you are delusional. You're going in and out of consciousness. Infection may have already started to occur. 
and you're in shock. So they're going to amputate. And the surgeon, his form of anesthesia is to have people hold you down. So to have upwards of maybe three to four men literally physically restrain you while he takes off whatever limb it is that has been that has been injured. Sure. Which is like, again, that is to me, it's like, oh my, so you're in all this pain. Um, and you, you, there is no, there is no recourse from it. Um, and I, I think it's especially like that quote from Letterman is especially like at the end when it's like, you know, doctors who, who gave their life in battle and then some of them just dropped dead from exhaustion. Yeah. I mean, imagine, imagine your entire day is you are sawing limbs off of someone and triaging someone. Right. And having people, you know, hold them down. And then even at that point, so even if that was successful, quote unquote, there was a, there was a chance for a secondary amputation, which was maybe after three days, if, if there was any sort of infection that was starting to come up. Well, here's, so here's the thing, right? So, so, okay. At this point, at this point, we knew, we knew after, um, so the first use of diethyl ether in the United States, and actually the first use of it in the, in mm-hmm. the world, was by uh, was in Boston on in, on sixteenth uh, of October, eighteen forty six. Um, there's actually a, still a really cool, um, still a really cool plaque about uh, where this occurred at Mass General Hospital, Massachusetts General Hospital, and it was in eighteen forty six that uh, dentist William Thomas Green Morton um, used diethyl ether to. Um, to basically, uh, he induced ether on someone, and then a surgeon, uh, John Collins Warren, removed a tumor from the neck of a patient. And uh, that's now that occurred in a in a surgical amphitheater that is now known as the Ether Dome because it's where ether was first uh, first utilized for this purpose. The Ether Dome, yeah, which is really cool. And so, bum, 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 bum. Um, <laughs> no, it's okay. And so, yeah, this basically, uh, so this is 1846. That this was first used, um, it became really widely available, um, really like, I want to say widely available around, uh, maybe around like the 1850s, right? But really, it was not, it was not taught or it was not a standard uh, method that was really used until uh, the first textbook on it came out which was in the 19, 1900s, 1914, um, which was kind of really the standard reference called anesthesia that was by uh, Dr. Uh, James Taylor Guathme and the chemist Dr. Charles Baskerville. And so that was really the first, what's the word, the first use of ether outside of, say, uh, the first, like, you know, the first production, the first use of it really widespread across the world, all that all that kind of stuff that we come to think of as modern surgery. Yeah. So ether was not ether chloroform. These compounds were not, while they were used during the civil war, they were not necessarily uh, commonplace. Yeah. Right. And so like Marie said, the most common form of performing these surgeries was here's some whiskey. We're going to hold you down, bite on this leather strap and mm-hmm. get ready for the pain. And um, the pain. I, so the other thing too that is amazing to me, speaking of pain, is really the very few instruments a surgeon had to perform oh, any of absolutely. this. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. So there was a, 
a, a um, sort of almost like a standard issue Civil War medic kit for amputation for surgeons. And we, we can put it up. We can put it in the show notes or up on the web. We have pictures yeah. of them. And I'll, just, I'll read through them and I will describe them really quick. So they were, there is a surgical scalpel, which looks all the world like a steak knife. Like when you think of a scalpel, you almost think of an exacto looking thing that is, you know, gleaming steel, stainless steel. And well, they're sharp. clean. They're clean. They're clean. They, and if they're right. not, they look clean. This looks like a steak knife, a dull right. steak knife. And just to, just to put it out there for people too, in reading the accounts of surgeons, um, in between surgeries, they were not cleaning off their knives. No, they were no. not cleaning these tools. So you can sponges. imagine, they were right? They, they, they were not. Um, the idea of infection as even a potential, like they knew enough to say that having people in a hospital was probably a bad idea because they seemed to get sick. But the cause of that sickness was thought to be miasma. And so miasma, for those that don't know what that term means, um, it's used to great effect in Dark Souls, which is the best video game of all time. Oh, my God. Um, so miasma. My Shut up, game reference. <laughs> miasma is uh, basically like it means noxious odor, like an unpleasant gas cloud that um, brings disease with it, basically. Mm. And so it was thought that hospital wards had these miasmas seeping from the wounds of sick patients. And so that's why people outside in the country who were um, getting better more readily than people who had surgeries mm -hmm. in the hospitals. Um, it was because clean fresh they, air, right? It was the clean, fresh air. It was the access to clean uh, air and water. It was not the fact that the surgeon had it probably at least washed his knife from the day before um, oh. when he was amputating legs down the road. Yeah. So, so this, this knife that they were using, like there's these really interesting descriptions of surgeons who had like their favorite knives. Right. And like, you know, they had knives that they, they you know, Oh, I haven't cleaned this knife since I started, you know, and they'd all, oh. Oh, oh, you superstitious fellow. And little do they know he's like, you know, the, the vector for, yeah, right. Like he's, he's zero. He's yeah. personally spread herpes to more humans than any <laughs> other. You know what I mean? Like, it's ridiculous. So anyways, okay, so. Even if they wanted to clean them, I think the sheer volume of what they, oh, of oh, how absolutely. they had to perform, they didn't have. They didn't have absolutely. a lot of chance to. So then we have the straight forceps, which are bullet extractors for removing the lead projectiles or whatever is left of them, which again, almost looks like very, getting more modern. It's very, almost very fine pliers. Um. My personal favorite, the large amputation saw, which is yeah. a saw. Like, if you saw this, you're like, oh, yeah, you would saw logs with right. that. No. That there is a surgical instrument. It went into a case. Um, scissors curved for cutting tissue and bandages. So, again, like, they were using the same things on human flesh and skin and tissue, but they were using to cut bandages to cut off, the, to cut off any kind of diseased... Um, or any kind of anything that was still on the and the uniform that was still on the soldier. So very low sanitation there. A probe to locate foreign objects in the wound, metal or bone, which looks like a very long, almost like a um, a stir 
for drinks. I was going to say the probe is pretty <laughs> much the probe. The probe is pretty much just like a it's just a, a drink stick. Store. It's just, it's a just stick. A, they could have called it a poker. It's, like it's just it's a really, stick, a poking rod. It is a big, it's a long stick. And then also, oh, the uh, teneculum used for seizing and holding body parts during surgery, such as arteries, uh, et cetera. So these look like something out of Hellraiser. <laughs> really? I mean, I mean, come on, man. This is total Clive Barker territory. They're just, they're, they're, they're curved hooks on wooden, on wooden, um, just like, holders welcome to anthology of heroes the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it in this podcast we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates instead we follow in the footsteps of national heroes kings or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world we're not hemmed in by eras borders or religions instead we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. And they are basically, again, just something that would that would seize into the skin to hold it in place or that would uh, stop bleeding, that could, that could hold something like an artery together. So you would minimize your bleeding. Yeah. So we actually, we actually still, uh, they, we, I don't do this kind of crap. Um, we, uh, we, as the general, like the world, we does still actually use this tool. Um, and it's actually, it's, it's interesting. I, cause Katie's got all these tools for, uh, for vet school, right? It's again, like this, the study, these studies have like expanded it out now to other things. And so it's this, um, Basically, today they look like scissors, but they have, uh, in particular, yes. they have these like, they have a, uh, there's a closing mechanism on them where you can basically close them and then they stay closed and they stay clamped really tightly so that you can kind of, you can pinch this, whatever it is, the artery, the whatever you need to pinch to stop blood flow. So then yes. you can sew it closed. They do not look like Hellraiser torture hooks. No, they look relatively, they, they just look like crappy scissors. Right. But, you know, oh, God. little then, do you know. Yeah. Um, so then a tourniquet, <laughs> which is again yep. just a length of uh, a length of gauze or a length yeah, of rope. A length almost. of cloth. Yeah. Um, a bone brush used to remove bone saw dust from the cutting site. So if you have time to tidy up afterwards... Right, you got this little brush for it, which, well, you know is, what, which is just uh, you know what's you know what's really actually kind of really scary to me. Or mm. <laughs> this is going to be gross. This is going to sound super gross. Oh, Do you? Oh, no worries. Okay, yeah. are you ever I'm just awake? Having some wine. Hold on. I'm just having, okay. Go ahead. Just finish your glass. Oh. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> are you ever awake? Are you ever awake at the dentist for when they do stuff to your teeth? 
Yeah. Do I have? Okay. To, wait, is there an option not to be? No, no, no. I mean, well, yeah. I mean, like, I mean, like. Um, wait, is there? So, no, no. There, there, there usually isn't. But like when I had my when I every time I have every time that I have had um, any kind of dental surgery, it's always been under general anesthesia. Mm-hmm. So I've never mm-hmm. gotten like laughing gas or anything like that. Which, by the way, laughing gas was discovered about five years before diethyl ether and um would have made that guy also super famous but when he he administered it wrong and so when he did the surgery the patient was like ow (laughs) so he got screwed but anyways um so like the smell of the smell of like the dentist Uh, drilling uh into your teeth Mm-hmm. Oh mm-hmm. my god, mm-hmm. that smell mm-hmm. is so mm-hmm. and the sound. Mm-hmm. Oh my god, mm-hmm. that's sm- mm-hmm. like I can just imagine. Yep. I don't even know if because like I, I mean I'm sure the and that's with I've a never, high like a high frequency drill. Yeah, I can't this even is... imagine the smell of a surgery room. Oh yeah, well, you know we'll, we'll I mean? get to that. Camp. We'll talk about the the smells coming up Good next because that's another that's just lovely. Um, an amputation knife, which again is. A longer bladed knife, not serrated. It looks, it looks all the world like a knife that you would use to carve a turkey. Um, uh, Caitlin, which is a small double-edged knife. So it is a smaller, almost like a shiv, really, which is double-edged. So you could cut from either side. And it's a much smaller blade. It looks like only about four or five inches long. So that in general, was the majority of the, of the instruments that would be found in a surgeon's kit sure. performing and, these things. And really, though, and really, though, just to put it in perspective, that's like pretty close to what we have today still. We don't, we don't, have, a, we don't have a saw necessarily. I mean, sometimes you do. Sometimes do. you do use a we saw. Do. We have more like power tools. So if you're an orthopedist, right. an orthopedic surgeon or a spine surgeon, you have things that um, are mechanical yeah drills or almost robotic at this point so actually and actually that's a point that they mention in a lot of these books on surgery is that these surgeons at the time had to be like ungodly strong right these were extremely strong people because they were basically um they were basically well besides that they were they were holding down people in their throes of pain and were I mean, just imagine cutting through, I mean, a hip, a hip in 10 minutes uh-huh. or less, right? So 10, not uh-huh. even 10 minutes just to get the cut, being able to cut it, sew it up, clean it up, get it ready for them to go out to a, uh, another place that all of that in 10 minutes, that requires extreme strength, extreme, um, like sureness or fortitude. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's the, the. The abilities of these surgeons, I think, is, yeah, I mean, I agree that it's, it's terrible that they've been, I mean, they were limited by their knowledge. They were not limited by the, um, it wasn't like they wanted to do it this way. No. You know I think I mean? this, was, like, this was all bore out of necessity, right? Right. And they've been maligned for, for having to act in a certain way just to preserve whatever life they possibly could. Right. And I think that. That's, I mean, just thinking about it kind of makes me like, oh. But what is the good part, too? What's extra special about all of this is, so you've, you've gotten through a whole day's worth, a couple of days worth of surgeries, right? And the battle is pretty much winding down for the day, if it ever does. 
and you have just all of these body parts <laughs> that have been removed or a bit of are, are damaged or that have been you know wounded or are starting to putrefy um one of the articles i found in the smithsonian magazine which again is where i go to when i want to find something extra special you know very very relevant <laughs> very well detailed and documented and also really disgusting a nurse describes the smell of the civil war and she so this a uh, woman that they documented talking to, Carolyn Hancock, was 23 when she served as a nurse after the Battle of Gettysburg in 1863. She found the smell of decaying bodies so strong that she viewed it as an oppressive, malignant force capable of killing wounded men who were forced to lie amongst the cor- corpses until the medicals, medical corpse could reach them. So it was... Sh- so the smell was so oppressive and so terrible that it would it had the ability to kill. So almost like the miasma, miasma, that is the miasma idea. That is, that is the, the miasma, miasma but it's a real thing. A sickening, overpowering, awful stench announced the presence of the unburied dead, which in the July sun was which. Uh, the dead upon which the July sun was mercilessly shining, and at every step the air grew heavier and fouler until it seemed to possess a palatable, horrible density that could be seen and felt with the cut of a knife. Jesus. I know. So, right? so what do you uh, like? I mean, it's yeah. like, ah. So one one other thing that really made the Civil War. Such, I mean, like, like we've keep, we keep alluding to, obviously this was, uh, this was, you know, butchery, right? This was mm-hmm. people being mowed down by their fellow countrymen. And then these poor people, um, go to another person, uh, a surgeon who is, you know, one of 114 potentially, right? I'm sure along the way, they must've trained people on the job, mm-hmm. but still. Have someone to. without someone without significant training who is, I mean, forced to do this terrible work day in and day out. Um, it's it's pretty it's pretty horrendous. But really, the thing that the thing. So they've actually done some studies to see, you know, as far as they can tell, at least did surgery during the Civil War actually uh, was it beneficial to the soldiers? And they've actually found in some cases like amputations. Um, in general, amputation doubled the survival rate yes. uh, of a soldier. So it actually was beneficial for amputation to occur. But the thing that really was the most deadly was infection. And one of the reasons that infection was such a big deal, besides the lack of cleanliness and all of that other stuff, was that during the Civil War, um, at the time, the ideas of uh, the ideas of Hippocrates and Galen of the, of the humors were mm-hmm. still prevalent in the surgical and in, in the mind of basically all, you know, knowledgeable people. Right. And so when a wound started to show pus, it was thought that it was healing correctly as opposed to getting infected. Yes. Because the pus, the pus was viewed as evidence that the, that the body was kind of reinstating, um, some level of balance for itself, right? It was so, white, 
right? Right. If it was white in particular, <sighs> white, white and thick pus was considered to be a really great sign of healing when in fact it meant your body is trying to kill itself. Right. Your body is trying to clear out this infection as best it can. And so those cases where people were really the ones that should have been getting either secondary amputations or further wound um, cleaning of some sort. They didn't even know at the time to clean the wounds, right? They didn't even know to clean the wounds. They thought uh, they had no notion that that was a thing that should be done even. So, um, so it's quite, I mean, it's fascinating to think that um, the character who is going to be really the focus of our next episode, uh, Lister, who is really the father of, um, of of clean of cleanliness in hospitals and in surgeries and really brought about the revolution in infection control uh he was uh, he was a student at the time of the civil war in the united kingdom and to think that had he had his ideas or had he been born a few years earlier a lot of the deaths of the civil war might have been uh, might have been avoided it's, it's really fascinating yeah. to me but I mean, even besides the surgery, I mean, if you look at sort of the general conditions of the Civil War and what was going on, that there's poor, no hygiene, there was no sanitary disposal of garbage or human waste. The diets and the food that people were eating were, were no, you know, no fresh fruits, no fresh vegetables. Well, did you ever see, did you ever see the, did you ever see oh. the, do, there was a documentary on Netflix called Filthy Cities. It wasn't like a do- it was like a series of documentaries. It was more like a TV show, I guess. But it was I had um, not. Okay, you know why? Because I'm I'm probably gonna watch Arrested Development or It's okay. Always Sunny when I go to Netflix. You're, like, right. you're like, ooh, filthy cities. No, <laughs> no, it's always Sunny's off Netflix now, Marie. Oh, seriously? Yeah. What is going on with Netflix? I, I haven't. I don't know what they're too, doing. I couldn't find it. It's ridiculous. Uh, well, that's it. We're, we're not you taking them on as a sponsor, man. I don't care how often they ask us. No, I'm I mean, joking. We, I mean, we would Netflix, but, please give yeah. us money. Yeah, please. I've got a great write up about a, a boy and his cats. It's really heartwarming stuff. Um, <laughs> so the. Uh, the really. Big thing that was from this documentary was was talking about the way that sanitation was revolutionized in the modern city. And so it looked at New York City, it looked at Paris, and it looked at London. Uh-huh, and uh-huh. like the conditions of the conditions of a civil like those conditions were not much different. Than, I mean, obviously there was a lot more blood and death mm-hmm. um, everywhere present, but in terms of the sanitation, like sanitation was pretty terrible everywhere, right? Yes. Again, again, we at this point in time. There is absolutely no the prevailing notion of why people get sick is that a bad smell comes into their homes and it infects them with disease. Which like is kind of funnily not that far off in some cases, like with a cold, right? A sneeze travels through the air and can then make you sick. Well, but, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. But that's that's the prevailing notion of how disease is transmitted. And there is no notion of public cleanliness or um, the need for sanitation in large bodies of people, even in even in polite society, let's say at this point. Right. So mm-hmm. the um, the fact that, you know, 
Like it's just it's it's all of these things come together again. Our ability to kill each other had far outstripped our ability to take care of ourselves to sustain right? life. Yeah, right. And so it's it's really yeah. it is fascinating. Yeah. But so okay, so we've we've Ugh. talked about all the terrible things about the Civil War, but some some good advances for medicine for surgery and in particular for emergency management came out of the Civil War. Yes. So we're looking at things like uh, ambulances. Yes. The notion of a triage center of how to actually rank cases. And then also the American Red Cross. The idea of a need for um, specific and trained doctors to go out to places that don't have them. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So the uh, first off, the idea of triage is fascinating because it's one of those it's one of those things where it's one of those things where we don't think of it as even being an idea. Right. Right. Like we don't even think about it being <laughs> like, we're like, yeah, of course it is. You know, like, of course that's a thing that has to happen. Right. We have, we have the luxury of perspective too. like, right. If, if you're in a burning building and everything's on fire, which is what I would equate like the civil war to, it's like trying to figure out how do I prioritize? Must have right. been like, there is no fucking priority. You're just going to have to throw water as, as much fire as you possibly can. And so right, of course. Actually being able to triage and be like, hey, no, we have to step back and look at this in this way is to me like that. That's mind boggling. Yeah, it's one of those. It's one of those areas, though, where I think a lot of like, like. So first off, for those that don't know what triage even means, um, which was definitely me before this episode. Um, tree. I mean, I had some idea like I'd been to a triage center. And, and like I knew mm -hmm, I, mm -hmm. I knew that after an earthquake, mm -hmm. if you were bringing if you were a doctor going to a hospital, you had to yell, someone get me to triage. Or like, it's crazy in triage, take him to triage. Like I knew that was a thing you yelled, but I didn't know why. Ooh. So triage is this is a definition of triage. It is the assignment of degrees of urgency to wounds or illnesses to decide the order of treatment of a large number of patients or casualties. Now, the reason that this is so fascinating, and actually, this is part of a larger question. It was one of the most fascinating parts of probably one of the most fascinating college courses I ever took, um, which is the idea of rank, like ranking body parts, ranking diseases, putting, putting value on um, like that, that sort of arithmetic around human lives mm -hmm. is such a foreign, it's such a, it is such an obvious concept to us today where we think of like supermodels putting out, um, insurance claims on their legs, right? Or, um, Ooh, that you was know, a left turn. No, I'm still with you. Well, no, seriously. Excellent. Like, yeah. no, no, yeah, but yeah, that, yeah. that is, that yeah. is serious though. I mean, I think. Yeah. Heidi Klum's legs are insured for like a million dollars each or something. It's crazy. Uh, they, yeah, well, they've depreciated. Let's let's be. Real. Let's not go there, Marie. <laughs> Come on, depreciation jokes are funny. Um, so the no, but Heidi, you cannot. We can't disperse Heidi Klum on the show, Marie. No, and I'm not. Um, no, I'm not disperting. The so the like the idea though that you could like this dehuman. Let's let's put it this way. If you are in that situation where you have five patients and they all are hurt and you're like, well, which one do I pick to do? Like, 
-hmm. If I pick this guy first, he like this guy's going to die. If I do him first, then he might not die. But this other guy who is in better shape might die in the time that it takes me to get to him. Who do you pick? Right. Right. Right? That is an impossible moral question for a person to make, especially one under the distress of having five injured people in their room. So the idea of triaging where you actually you almost dehumanize the situation by you take it out of the surgeon's hands. It's not my decision to treat Billy versus Bob. Um, It's it's up to the hospital. It's up to medical Mm -hmm. uh, good rules. It's up to Mm -hmm. the triage guidelines. Standard sort of. I don't want to say universal, but a known standard that if you go to this hospital, it will be the same as the other hospital. Absolutely. Absolutely. Maybe not in the 1800s, but definitely to that point. Like, right. And so it, this it, it, is the known equations. Right. And so it gets rid of that sense of sort of um, personal responsibility of, well, you know what? I tried to deal with these guys and I couldn't. Um, but, you know, like this was the this is how we had to do it. Yes. Right. And if you can imagine like what would be a early triage in Civil War. First of all, like the smell as we're hearing is is disgusting and is almost overwhelming. People are probably screaming and delusional. Um, So, I mean, being able to prioritize or think about like this person is in more pain than this person, or this person needs medical help more than or before anyone else. To me, it's like that. Yeah. As you you speak to it, it's like the moral implications of having to take that on. You're, there's no way you're going to make a clear or rational decision because it is so overwhelming. Yeah. Uh, so all, so it actually two of these, so this idea of triage and even the idea of ambulances came from one person, um, Jonathan Letterman, yeah. who uh, was a major in the union army. Yes. And um, who was your quote earlier? Yeah. They're, who, they're who, not who, butchers. Who, yes. Yeah. Was the quote earlier. he, um, really had a huge, huge, huge effect on not only civil war outcomes for patients, but I mean, patients throughout history. Right. Mm-hmm. And really he's kind of, um, he would be kind of, if, if, if we're talking about who are the fathers of surgery, Letterman would kind of be the father of emergency care. Yes. Right. So what he, uh, what he did was after the uh, second Manassas battle. So actually for those that don't know much about the civil war, um, I suggest uh, Shelby Foote's civil war is a really good book on it. Although there's three of them and they are extremely long. I only read the first two. And then the third one I had to get on audible. Cause I was like, not again, Shelby, but <laughs> not again, um, man. I was like, I got to finish. I know how it ends, but I got to finish. I'm going but, home and getting in a fetal position and weeping for humanity. So, So what happened was after the battle uh, of second Manassas, what occurred was basically it took extremely long time to remove all of the wounded and dead from the battlefield. So people like men were on the battlefield begging for water or treatment or help for uh, a week in some cases, Um, a week or more, a week or more. Right. God. Yeah. And so, and so what happened was, uh, the general of, at the time, George McClellan said, okay, well, listen, and again, the civil war, the union ran through generals, like, you know, 
we just had a whole bunch. But um, George McClellan gave him basically the the okay to just do what you got to do to make this better, right? To to make this medical thing work a little bit better for us. And so, um, what he instituted were three major ideas. The first one is the idea of triage. And so basically what that would look like at, uh, for, for a patient was if you are in imminent danger of death, you get treated first. If you are likely to survive, you'll get treated, but still like deathly wounded or really wounded, you get treated second. And then those that are there, you know, the guy who didn't make it to the battle because he had bone spurs, he gets treated last. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, Zing, by the way. <laughs> But um, so, OK, but then then Letterman. All right. So Letterman really is the father of modern emergency medicine, and he created a couple of important things. First is triage and triage, again, is this idea that if you are about to die, you will get treated first over someone who just has a, you know, a flesh wound or someone who. Um, sprained an ankle or something on the on the battlefield like mm-hmm. someone who is really really in deathly danger will get treated first and so he created a method for dealing with that the second one was an ambulance corps so uh creating a, a team of men who would go out um with stretchers and wagons and things and uh pick up wounded soldiers and bring them back which is amazing which is a great idea right which seems like a relatively simple idea except they're doing it on a battlefield. Right. And then, well, and then he came up with, well, the thing is that during the Civil War, battles happened during the day. Mm-hmm. Right. At nighttime, mm-hmm. you couldn't see, you couldn't fight at night. And so at nighttime, when the battles ended, this is when the ambulance corps would go out and get these people. Still, dear God. Still terrifying, but a, dark with a, but a very, a very, um, like war was very, war still was relatively gentlemanly at that time. And the next one was actually the creation of um, was the creation of what was termed the evacuation system. And this was basically three different types of medical places for wounded soldiers. The first being a field dressing station, which was near the battlefield. Mm-hmm. And this would be you bring these people off the battlefield, you apply uh, tourniquets, you do whatever you got to do um, to yeah. get them survivable, and then you move them. And then you move them to a field hospital, which is near the battlefield. And these field hospitals are usually the most haunted of the Civil War like areas. Um, And so those are those are usually like someone's home or a barn or something. Uh, And this was where hospitals where you would get sort of together. So the field dressing Mm -hmm. station is the tent hospital. The field hospital is like where the surgeries were happening. Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and then after mm-hmm. the surgery occurred, they would also then have uh, bigger hospitals in like centralized locations where people could then recuperate. Right. Yes. Which are definitely fucking haunted. And then on top of that, too, um, Letterman really uh, created a, a system where like a big part of the Civil War was actually stopping supplies from getting to place to place. Mm-hmm. And the North had a huge advantage because the North had rail. We had, we had a railroad system. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, but like that was a whole, a big part of the civil war was uh, skirmishes and battles or like espionage almost where one side would go and destroy the rail lines of another side to try to kind of pinch them in 
um, where, okay, well, you can't get supplies anymore. Now we'll keep them here until they basically can't fight any longer. So Letterman came up with a, with, with basically distribution systems for medical supplies. Whereas before it had been not for medical supplies, it had been for weapons and bullets and stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so in a, so the, the ambulance corps really was, was tested the first time at the battle of Antietam, not tested per se, but really proven to be useful. There were 23,000 casualties. Um, and they were removed from the battlefield in less than 24 hours. So an amazing feat. Which is amazing. Yes. An amazing feat of human engineering. So um, Letterman really did a, an amazing job, really. And uh, really, is, his contributions to medicine can't be overstated. You know what I mean? Like He was extremely, extremely important to this. The other really good thing that came out of the Civil War was the American Red Cross, mm-hmm. right? Where um, this was created by Clara Barton, who was a nurse in uh, the American Civil War. And uh, she was born in Massachusetts, which is really cool. And uh, you can, you can shout actually out like Mass. shout out to <laughs> Massachusetts. Very awesome. And so um, she basically created this um what's the word she basically created a method of moving about um moving about teams of um women mm-hmm. specifically to bring supplies and food and stuff to wounded soldiers yes. right and yes. so she created a method where or basically a system for um moving about medical supplies and moving about these things that people needed um, while they were getting better at these hospitals, right? Yeah, to and get so, supplies in and to help relieve where necessary. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And so, um, basically, she created the first. I mean, she really did create the first uh, charitable organization for the treatment of soldiers. Yes, right, and really, um, really became known as the Angel of the Battlefield. Uh, was a was a title for her, or the American Nightingale. After, mm-hmm. uh, after uh, Florence Nightingale, yeah. which is really cool. And so she uh, basically, she, she became a, a, a source of comfort. Her and her teams became a source of comfort to soldiers as they got better. And really, I mean, without the American Red Cross, without Clara Barton, the idea of, I guess, a, a nurse as someone to um, treat, you know, Someone who's not doing medical, not necessarily doing medical treatment in terms of surgeries or whatever, but applying the the treatments, you know, giving yeah. medicines, you know, being stabilize morale, like absolutely have someone to talk to, to actually, you know, have someone that cares about your condition at that absolutely. time is probably huge. Yeah. So it became yeah. it became extremely important. And so. um she basically became she basically became after the war uh, a person for person who fought for the rights of soldiers and, and veterans right um you know to talk about uh missing men from the war in particular mm-hmm. right so she ran an office that was the the office of missing soldiers which basically was to find or identify soldiers killed or missing in action and um they found they, they were able to find 
uh, more than 22,000 missing men. Wow. Which is amazing. That is amazing. Um, and so th- they were able to find and then bury uh, these men. And, and again, really, um, really doing a, a tremendous service again to veterans and really started the idea of, I like the idea of, of thanking veterans for maybe not thanking veterans for their service. The idea of, well, acknowledging of, the loss, right? Right. Right. And the, the total of what, of what the war cost in actual human life. And that that's right. someone's brother, husband, son, you know, yeah. that that's important. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so she really then became basically a, um, she basically became something of a consultant to different, uh, different places during their own wars. Right. So, uh, she in particular was part of the Franco Prussian war where, uh, she, yeah, where she helped to create, uh, military hospitals. Um, and then, uh, what's the word, um, basically created, you know, all these different things that were helpful to the movement of these items, you know, medicines, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, bandages, clothing, food, water, all these things. Right. And so she got, uh, she actually ended up receiving for her time in the Franco Prussian war and helping to do these things. Um, she ended up receiving a Prussian iron cross, which is yeah, like super amazing. And then, um, and then that work there with, um, that work there where she, so basically this was part of the red cross already existed Mm -hmm. in some ways in uh, Switzerland. And it was after though her time in the Franco Prussian war that um, the idea of the American red cross, the American red cross started. And so she began, you know, basically fighting for this, um, right. Fighting for this group to exist. That's amazing. The one thing, though, that I didn't hear you mention in everything that she gave that actually kind of just came into my head when we were talking about this is like, so after the war, the need, so everyone always, a huge amount of soldiers have amputations. So the need for artificial limbs. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yes. Right. Which is a huge, again, something that has come so far again with 3D printing, you know, and we can talk more about that, but that. Now there is this this market and this industry for for the artificial limbs and something that happened to me that or happened that I think is also interesting that a large um, a large group of veterans both in the north and the south did not want to wear the artificial limb um, and even they they did get money back or they were eligible to collect. Um, to actually put towards one, but they didn't want it because they didn't want the idea of charity. But then also the importance of pinning up an empty sleeve or trouser leg instead of hiding the injury was called um, the honorable scar. So it was a way of making their sacrifice very visual and showing that this is that they gave this for their, for their country, especially like immediately after the war. So people, you know, again, general civilians after the war could see, had a very visual reminder of what that this person did. Yeah. Right. Right. That this is what the cost, right. That this is the cost of it. Instead of trying to mask it or to, um, you know, which again, to, in, in my opinion, the idea of like the advent of artificial limbs and being able to augment the human body 
is is a huge advent and is, is fascinating in itself. But the idea of sort of negating that and saying, nope, this is the physical toll on humanity. Sure. Writ, you know, writ small on the individuals who fought it is is a pretty uh, pretty moving and pretty you know uh, emotional emotional reminder. Absolutely. From from both both sides of the war at that point. No, totally. So so after she returned from um, the Franco-Prussian War, she uh, came back to the United States, founded the American branch of the Red Cross, and then basically uh, fought with the government for official recognition and funding and specifically saying that the red cross could be something more than just a, uh, a war thing, mm-hmm. right? Oh, we, we could, you know, yeah. we could be used for things. Um, what's the word we could, we could be used for things like uh, earthquakes or, mm-hmm. you know, um, floods or yeah. whatever. Right. Oh my God. And yeah. so, um, yeah. So that was really what that was really what kind of founded the American Red Cross. And then she continued to do really wonderful work, um, you know, until she finally uh, retired from the Red Cross. But it's 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 extremely interesting. And it I mean, she deserves her own episode, really. Um, Yeah, I'll go out of necessity. Really, it's some necessity. It's quite amazing. So. That is the so that is kind of what occurred on the American side of the Atlantic during the 1800s to the uh, at this point. Now we're getting into the up to the 1900s, mm-hmm. right? So the Civil War ends in 1865, 66. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And really, Americans thought at that time, Americans thought we would never see another war like that again. And while we haven't seen another civil war, we have seen wars. Um, I mean, it wasn't that long until World War One, which was a, a, I mean, just a, a huge atrocity mm-hmm. in all in all possible versions of that word. And so, the idea of medical treatment went back to being a academic thing, right? But those benefits of the the experiences of triaging patients and creating an ambulance corps and uh, the usefulness of nurses and having a good distribution method for supplies and having enough on hand and storing them correctly. These things that Letterman and Barton and, you know, that the, the, these things that these surgeons during the civil war found to be useful really helped to revolutionize medicine. Now, in London at this time, we see the beginnings of really the scientific revolution in surgery. Mm -hmm. So next episode, we are going to talk about the the work of people like uh, Lister and uh, John Hunter, who created these methods whereby surgery could become a scientific, uh, a scientific process. We talked a little bit about John Hunter in the previous episode one. Yes. And we talked about how what he ended up coming up with basically was these methods to control bleeding by performing surgeries and and cauterizing wounds and and sewing them up and and moving blood about the body um, by using this uh, method to kind of 
you close off one pathway, but the other pathway allows for blood movement still. But they still had not figured out infection, and they hadn't figured out during the Civil War either. Mm. And that's really where Joseph Lister is going to become the most important, one of the most important parts of this story. But with John Hunter and with Joseph Lister, in some ways, there are problems. And the biggest problem is how do you learn about the body if bodies are illegal to possess? Mm. Yeah, you can only test on yourself so often, right? Yeah, exactly, right? And actually, a lot of those guys that discovered ether and chloroform and stuff mm-hmm. did test on themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but <laughs> but mm. one of the methods to get bodies was to steal them. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so the laws at the time basically caused surgeons and those who wanted to study anatomy to become criminals. And one of the most, it's, it's one of the most gruesome parts of scientific history. And it's the part that we're going to get into next episode. And it is, you know, it's also kind of fun. Oh, it's super fun. Super, now, super fun. to end this episode, dear listeners, I want to, I want to, I, I want to close. I want to close with a quote. One of the ways that surgeons had for getting bodies legitimately, let's say, at least legally, was from capital punishment victims. So the Murder Act of 1751 in particular, uh, which was an act of Parliament of Great Britain, included provisions including, quote, for better preventing the hard crime of murder, that some further terror and peculiar mark of infamy be added to the punishment. Uh. And, quote, in no case whatsoever shall the body of any murderer be suffered to be buried. And this, this law in particular mandated that the body would be di- dissected publicly. Mm, publicly, you know, not in private. Or hung behind closed about, doors. Or hung about. Hung about, as you do. Now... This led to some interesting cases where if you were hung for a crime, your body was basically up for grabs. Literally. And so, and so although teaching hospitals were given a stream of bodies and a relatively small stream, definitely not enough to keep up with all of the patients or all of the, the students that wanted to learn surgery, private surgeons, people basically priving, you know, Uh, performing private medicine at their homes had to find other ways to get bodies. And one of those ways was to hire local goons to go to these sites of the hanging, to go to the gallows. And after the bodies were hung to steal the bodies from the relatives of the hung men. Mm, mm, mm. And so this is a quote from Samuel Richardson, which I originally heard in the knife man, which is about John Hunter. Um, This quote goes, so this is from 1740, Samuel Richardson, quote, As soon as the poor creatures were half dead, I was much surprised before such a number of peace officers to see the populace fall to hauling and pulling the carcasses with so much earnestness as to occasion several warm recounters and broken heads. These were the friends of the persons executed, and some persons sent by private surgeons to obtain bodies for dissection. The contests between these were fierce and bloody and frightful to look at, end quote. That's where we're going to leave it for this episode. 
which is basically brawling over dead bodies. You're welcome, and, dear uh, listener. And that's where we're going to start next episode. So I hope that you've enjoyed this one on the Civil War. Absolutely. Uh, Marie, Marie, this was a good episode. Having a good time. Oh, yeah. You know, I just I was going to go fix myself some dinner now. But strangely enough, I'm not that hungry. Not feeling that's weird. Not you not feel hungry. I think I that's just super make, I make weird. myself a, a stiff drink and, and interesting, just, you know, curl up with the blankie. Interesting. Simpler times. <laughs> Think about all. nice stuff like kittens and other kittens things. Kittens and flowers and shit like that. Good stuff. Mm-hmm. Nice. Well, dear listeners, you can, uh, as always, contact us at Mad, uh, Mad Scientist Pod on Twitter, at Team Giant Squid on Twitter. You can follow us on Instagram at Mad Scientist Pod. Um, you, can f- you can email us at the Mad Scientist Podcast at gmail.com. And of course, you can find us on Facebook. On uh, all of the podcast apps that you like, you write us reviews. Those reviews actually really help us a lot. And if you subscribe and review on iTunes, it helps yes. push us up onto those charts and also helps to put us, also helps potentially to put us on the new and noteworthy uh, ranking thing. So that first page on iTunes, when you go there, um, potentially could put us there. So if you like the show, the show, the big show, con- we consider, consider subscribing on iTunes, consider leaving a review. Don't um, just consider. What's this? Consider. What's this? You should consider. Do it. Do it, dear listeners. Do it. We love you. We love you and we want you to listen. Please. (laughs) All right. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you again. Hey there. I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon.